No matter what it does, the IRS always seems to be saddled with outdated information technology systems. At the moment, a third of its applications are considered legacy, and that's according to the Government Accountability Office. The agency is running 21 modernization projects, but the GAO found problems with how those are going. We get more now from the GAO's Director of Information Technology and Cybersecurity Issues, Dave Hinchman. Dave, good to have you back. Hi, Tom. Thanks for having me today. I want to start with a detail in the report, and then we'll back out to some of the larger picture here. But they have suspended their work on the master file system, which is the absolute hard nugget core of the modernization effort they need to do. They have tried to do this time and time and time again. Why have they pulled back from that essential task? Well, I think that's a really important point from what we found, Tom. You know, the individual master file, as you point out, is IRS's authoritative data source for individual tax account data. It's where your tax files are kept. It's where mine are kept. And it is now about 60 years old. The original system was built when the Apollo moon projects were still, uh, the Apollo moon shots were still happening. And while they've moved the existing computer code onto modern platforms, it's still written in COBOL, which is a computer language that isn't even taught in schools anymore. IRS recognizes this. They've been trying to modernize the program for a number of years, at least over a decade. And there are several aspects to that modernization. And recently, we found that two of those specifically, which was the customer account data engine, which is a huge part of replacing the IMF, as well as another part of the modernization fund were suspended because IRS at the agency level decided to reprogram the funds that had been designated for those two efforts. We were not given a reason why that was, and the CIO's office was currently working to investigate what other options they had for continuing those efforts. Yeah, that Cade goes back, I think your report says at least 10 years. I would say it's about 25 years, actually, from my experience. And well, let's let's get to the bigger picture here. Your report says there are 21 modernization plans going on. Most of them seem to be compliant to what is required of a modernization effort, but not all of them are. No, yeah, we when we look at modernization plans for legacy IT, there are three things that we look for. One is, you know, does the plan have the milestones necessary to complete the effort? Does it does the plan have a description of what's necessary to modernize the system? And thirdly, are there details about how the agency plans to dispose of the legacy IT that's being replaced? And when we looked at the 21 plans, there were nine of those 21 apply to legacy. The other ones are actually just new development that are going to help modernize the IRS's IT infrastructure. But of those nine legacy modernization plans, three of them were complete. They had all three of those elements look, we were looking for, but the other six, none of them discussed what they were going to do with their legacy IT. And that's not necessarily a bad thing. IRS said that, you know, they were going to address that as they got later into the life cycle. But I think, you know, I would argue that until those plans are complete, there's reason to be concerned about the lack of accountability for completing that key element. It's too easy for personnel to turn over or for things to get shoved aside and forgotten. And, you know, I think that even if it was just a commitment that we will decide how to dispose of legacy IT by this specific date would be an important commitment to make. And what do you mean of by dispose of legacy? I mean, if it's old computer code, there's nothing really to dispose of. Well, 
this also applies to hardware. Uh, and, you know, I think one of the things we talk about is the amount of legacy hardware that IRS has in their IT infrastructure. It's not a huge amount. It's not an abnormal amount. But I think that those actual physical things that are taking up space in a data center or a computer closet are important aspects of ensuring that you've thought through your modernization effort and what it's going to take to bring all of your infrastructure into modern times with modern equipment and modern software. Right. I mean, you can have a contractor say, we'll recycle it or something. That could be part of the plan. Absolutely. But there just needs to be, you need to have a sense for what you're going to do with it. And did you get the sense, though, that there is a vision for what a modernized IRS will look like on the part of the CIO and the staff? And really, it's the CIO is only part of the picture here. I mean, the agency head yeah. and the different division owners really need to have the same vision, too, don't they? Oh, sure. This you know, a, a thorough modernization effort stretches across the organization. Everyone's involved from, you know, in the case of the IRS, the commissioner, down to the CIO, as well as the other heads of other units within the agency. And I think when you look at the scope of the 21 modernization in initiatives that we looked at, uh, and then our report details all 21 of those, I think you get a real sense that they're looking across the organization holistically. So not just at sort of the very IT driven stuff, um, but also looking at how they can expand into cloud, how they can improve assistance to customers, as well as other aspects of IRS's operations. We're speaking with Dave Hinchman, Director of Information Technology and Cybersecurity Issues at the GAO. And on that cloud question, they have made progress toward the cloud. And you said they have fulfilled most of the OMB requirements, the White House requirements for doing cloud computing. But that gets back to some of these older technology systems that use COBOL. And actually, I think the master file is assembler, not even COBOL. And those are pretty hard to move to the cloud because of the way they work. And you need a lot of work to get them to operate in the cloud. And it may not be worth heaving them up there because it's still the same old yeah. code. So I think that something like the IMF, I'm not sure that would ever go to the cloud. I think that, you know, as you pointed out, that that is a complex application. And depending on how they're looking at bringing in CAID to replace IMF and what options there were, that could also be for security purposes, they could decide not to move it into the cloud. And I think as long as there's a well thought out business decision made and documented about, about that, that's a reasonable approach. Uh, meanwhile, they, there are lots of other cloud efforts that they're looking at underway. You know, one thing that they looked at, uh, you mentioned they've implement a lot of the OMB cloud requirements, which is great. That's what we want to see. But they've also done a lot of business value assessment of their cloud efforts. And I think that that is starting to show some of the benefits that IRS is beginning to realize. For instance, they looked at 53 applications that were going to be moved into the cloud in fiscal year 22. And they found that of those 50, we're going to provide moderate to high value overall from the benefits they were going to realize from the cloud. And that came under financial benefits, business benefits, as well as minimizing enterprise risk. So they found things like immediate cost avoidance, reduction in future costs, so downstream from managing applications, contributing to advancing IRS's sort of long-term vision about what they're going to look like in the cloud, and as I pointed out, reducing the risk that was presented by access to those applications. And I want to comment or ask you to comment on Table 5, which I think says a lot. And if anyone looks, wants to look at the long-form report, it's on page 25. But 
if you look at the actual start date of different projects and planned completion dates, some of them look normal in the course of how federal government operates. The cloud execution program, actual start date December 2018, planned completion date December 2022. We passed that date, but you said they've done a lot of they've done a lot of work there. Customer account data engine CAD two transition started in 2010, maybe finished in 2024. Some of them even go back before that. My question, I guess, is: Will the CAD ever be done? Will the master file system ever be done? Or should they say, you know what, we can run assembler for another 25 or 30 or 40 years if the Air Force can run a B-52 for 100 years? Well, I, I think the the second approach you, you detail is probably not realistic. You know, increasingly it's harder to find people who can manage the code that you know powers these these older systems. Those you know languages aren't taught in school, and so the number of people who have skills in those languages are increasingly smaller number every year, and as a consequence, are more expensive to hire. The, the problems with CATE are certainly longstanding. We don't completely understand all of them yet. We haven't had a chance to do a deep dive into something like that. But I think that the most recent date was that IRS was saying that CATE 2 was going to replace IMF by 2030. However, the you know we mentioned the pause on the projects. Uh, that's one of them. And so now the impact that's going to have on the IMF replacement date is still TBD. But we've just started new work, as we do as part of uh, the IRS's annual appropriation. We're asked to go in and look at some of their major systems applications and progress being made in terms of their business systems modernization. And so I'm sure we'll be examining that issue as part of that work. Right. And you made nine recommendations, and pretty much the IRS reacted how to those? They agreed with all of them. Our recommendations for this report were primarily focused about completing those elements of the modernization plans that we thought we were missing. And all we really asked them to do was commit to a timeline for when they were going to complete those plans. Because I think it's important to give them a chance to, especially for you know resolving the disposition of those legacy IT assets, to give them a chance to really look at the issue and make sure that they're making good decisions that make good business sense. And so all we asked them to do was to agree to a timeline for when they were going to do that, and they agreed to those recommendations. Maybe they could get together with the National Science Foundation and start a University of COBOL or something. Well, certainly the, the longer that IMF uh, sticks around um, running on these older languages, the greater the need for something like that is. Dave Hinchman is Director of Information Technology and Cybersecurity Issues at the Government Accountability Office. Thanks so much for joining me. Thanks, Tom. And we'll post this interview together with a link to his report at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Modernize your listening. Subscribe to the Federal Drive wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today, I'm thrilled to be joined by Dr. David Wilson, president of Morgan State University. David has had a fascinating career and has garnered a long record of accomplishments from more than 30 years of experience in higher education administration. Came to Morgan State in 2010 from the University of Wisconsin, where he was chancellor of both the University of Wisconsin Colleges and the University of Wisconsin Extension. Before that, he held numerous other administrative posts in academia, including vice president for the University of Outreach, associate provost at Auburn University, and um, associate provost of Rutgers. And when we were talking earlier, too, you had just mentioned that you had a um, 
uh, a wonderful nomination at the American Academy of Arts and Sciences. And David, thank you so much for joining me. Uh, Shane, it is indeed a pleasure uh, to be invited into this conversation with you. It's not in your um, in the short bio here, but I also know you served in some capacity in the Obama administration. Yes, I did. As a matter of fact, as I was leaving the University of Wisconsin, where I oversaw the UW colleges, I accepted the presidency at Morgan. And on my way into the presidency at Morgan in 2010, my name was advanced to President Obama to be considered as a member of his board of advisors on historically black colleges and universities. And so I accepted and served there for eight years during his two terms. Amazing. You've had a fascinating career at numerous universities across the U.S. How did you become passionate about the education field? And what are some of the biggest lessons that you've learned? First of all, I was made aware of a quote by Horace Mann, who was great 19th century educator who really gave rise to public education in the United States. And he was the first to utter the phrase that education is the great equalizer. And why that resonated with me was because I grew up in abject poverty uh, in rural Alabama, and there was no law in Alabama as I was growing up that required black kids to go to school. I was kind of shut off from formal education on a consistent basis. I didn't get a chance to go to school full-time until I was in the seventh grade. We lived on property there that were owned by um, the white landowners. And so the um, owner of the property, a white woman, would bring down to this little shanty that we lived in, and she would bring Look and Life magazines. My mom, uh, she would make us as children plaster these pages of Look and Life magazines against the wall of this little shanty to keep the cold wind out. I would take a kerosene lamp and go around the walls reading those articles in Look and Life magazines, which is when I first came across the phrase of Horace Mann. Hmm. From that point on, I committed myself you know, to education. It's an amazing story, and two things occur to me. One, it's almost incomprehensible that this happened during our lifetime. That, to me, is uh, almost shocking. It's also truly inspiring that you recognized that you could do more and sought out to do that and were successful at it. So when you think back on that experience, how has that informed, shaped, influenced your leadership position now as president of Morgan State? It, It had to have had an impact, but how would you articulate that? So if you go back to that Alabama environment, What I saw, it was just so many people, my own brothers and sisters, who were 10 times smarter than I was. But my first five brothers were illiterate. They never got an opportunity to show the nation how brilliant they were. Therefore, I really took on this whole notion that my life had to be about ensuring that individuals who were drowning in potential and they didn't realize it would be in a position where they would realize it. I was never ever about positions that would enable me simply to replicate privilege. I don't care where you went to school. I don't care what type of family you came from. I think that's where sometimes we kind of get education wrong. Uh, We have institutions that want to define themselves based on how many students they don't admit. I'm 
about just the opposite, taking individuals who are absolutely stellar and don't realize it and bringing that into existence for them. You've had so many opportunities that you could do other things, perhaps, at um, larger organizations. But you're where you want to be on purpose, by design, for the kinds of reasons you just talked about, that it's, it's fulfilling. But can you talk a little bit more about that? There have been so many so-called top 50 institutions in the United States that have come aggressively after me. And, you know, I flirted with a couple of them. And I went home to Alabama because these two were very serious. And my family is brutally honest with me, and they keep me grounded. So I flew down and began to talk with them about these institutions that were coming after me. I was thinking they would be impressed. And when I finished, my youngest sister said to me, now, are you finished? Clearly, we are not understanding why you would even consider leaving Morgan. It just reassured me that I'm living my purpose at Morgan. And it is joyful uh, to be at a place where you want to be versus being at a place where others think you should be. One question that I always have to ask, is there one leader or maybe a couple of leaders that have inspired you, that have, you mentioned Horace Mann, I don't know if, if that fits in this category, but what might be a couple of leaders that you remember that, that inspired you, that gave you a purpose, helped shape your life? In 1989, when I was selected as a W.K. Kellogg Fellow, we had to be introduced to leadership that was different in a lot of ways than the leadership that we had been exposed to. In February of 1990, uh, Mr. Nelson Mandela was released, and that's where I wanted to go and meet Mr. Mandela. We had no idea that he would grant an audience, and he did. He granted an wow. audience, and uh, Mr. Walter Sisulu did as well. So here I am, having grown up in Alabama, I harbored some anger toward the society there that kept me from realizing my potential and then kept so many others like me from ever realizing their potential. At the end of a conversation that we had, someone asked Mr. Sosulu, we're leaving this conversation thinking that you harbor no anger towards a society that locked you away for 27 years. Are we leaving with the correct conclusion? He said, I harbored no anger or bitterness toward the society that locked me away for all of those years because I and others like me knew that what we were doing was the right thing. If you commit yourself to doing the right thing, there should never, ever be any space in your heart for anger or bitterness. And that was transformational for me and why I respect and admire Mr. Nelson Mandela and Mr. Walter Sisulu today. That is a great story. And it, you know, with all the accomplishments through your life, I'm sure it had a great impact on your ability to, to go as far as you have, and you're still going. Well, uh, I, I have a takeaway in, in terms of leadership lessons I've learned. We would be well served as a nation if I think we created these opportunities for young people at various stages to really, first of all, see the United States. And then we need that same opportunity globally. As a result, when you do that, you understand the history over here. You understand the culture over here. You understand, and you got to understand the world beyond an intellectual understanding. 
you want to think of your maturation in a way where your brain can never, ever, ever be hacked. <laughs> so that's sort of the way that's sort of I, I the way that I kind of see all of that. You that's know? brilliant. <laughs> And um, being born in rural Southwest uh, Kansas, flyover country, as they say, I can I can tell you that your your comments about travel and getting out, not just reading about it, but actually traveling, it, it really is important. It's absolutely critical for someone's personal development. I I, I happen to think so. Well, Doctor <laughs> David Wilson, thank you so much. I love every single piece of today, but also your life story. It's really impressive, inspiring, and thank you for sharing it. Shane, thank you very much for inviting me to have this conversation with you again. And I'm Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. We'll see you next time on the Lessons in Leadership podcast.